Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Tonight I'm babysitting for my sister's kids, Rebecca and Elmo. They're really weird. I mean, they creep me out. Hi, kids. I didn't realize you were standing behind me staring blankly into space. That is such normal child behavior. It's It's time time for bed. Yes, it is. So let's talk about some happy things before you drift off to slumberland. Rebecca, do you still want to be a nurse like Betsy Kaplan when you grow up? That's when I was little. Now I want to be a functionary in a resource cartel. Very soon, planetary corporations will merge with trade-driven militaristic governments to monopolize the scant remaining resources of the Earth. If you're not on the inside, you're a casualty. That's not necessarily the only way. I plan to take over a deserted oil platform when the overall system dynamics break down, and I'm talking about carbon and nitrogen cycles, biodiversity loss. I will be a sovereign island nation stocked with high-grade weapons and candy bars. I'll be able to trade for whatever else I need. With just candy bars? By 2050, a single whatchamacallit candy bar will cost $740,000, according to my projections. I guess I'd better save some of those for me, huh, kids? You will have been eaten by hyenas or converted to a powdered food source. Mm-hmm, right. Okay, now, off to bed. Sweet dreams, you little soulless organisms. Whew, it's been a long night. I'm kind of amazed my sister and her husband aren't back yet. I mean, Snatched is not that long of a movie. You'd almost think they skipped town and left me with... Wait, I have to make some phone calls. Listen to this show. And now his bunker is full of toner cartridges and canned ham. Colin McEnroe. Well, you have to make some kind of a plan. All right, so let me just say... Um, well, so uh, Josh Nalea, our producer, has been working on this show for a while. And we use Google Docs here so that we can all kind of look at things and work on them at the same time. That's what Google Docs are for, of course. So this Google Doc has always been called Point of No Return, which, which in general I've sort of found off-putting. Uh, and so the notion uh, of the show, to a certain degree anyway, is to what degree have we already passed certain marker points that make it very difficult or or at least extremely less plausible that we could reel ourselves back into safety? Uh, Are there ways in which certain things have been put into motion that are going to be very, very difficult, if not impossible, to correct for? So you can see it's much more cheerful than Point of No Return makes it sound. And then actually, towards the end of the show, I should say that um, we're going to talk to kind of a solutionist, a techno-optimist, somebody who basically believes we can science our way out of this. Um, But what is this? That's the first thing we have to establish. Uh, With us today, Tom Butler, Vice President for Conservation Advocacy at the Foundation for Deep Ecology and the board president of the Northeast Wilderness Trust. He's the author of Overdevelopment, Overpopulation, Overshoot. Uh, Michael Clare, a five colleges professor of peace and world security studies, uh, defense correspondent of, of The Nation magazine, and author of The Race for What's Left, The Global Scramble for the World's Last Resources. You know, before we get to these guys... It wasn't always thus. There was a time, you know, say in the 1940s, 
uh, when we believed that maybe things were going to be a lot better in the future. Let's hear how that sounds. This is a 1940 film called New Horizons, in which you'll, well, you'll hear the feelings of hope. Telephone, electric lights, automobiles, aircraft, all are symbols of better living. An ever-widening range of goods made ever more plentiful. And with the demand for all of these conveniences and improvements, opportunities for employment of men, money, and materials have increased. New ways of living and new thinking have laid the foundation for most of what is good in life today, with the promise of more tomorrow. A vivid tribute to the American scheme of living. Come, let's travel into the future, the greater and better world of tomorrow that we are building today. What will we see? So, Tom Butler, if you were to travel back in time and talk to that announcer uh, about the promise of more and the uh, American way of living with wonderful surprises around the corner, based on what you know in 2017, pick one thing, one thing you'd like those people back in 1940 to know and think more about. It doesn't all come true. Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. I love that clip. That was brilliant. And it so uh, well encapsulates this idea that you can engineer your way to this bright and shiny future and it will ever be thus. Um, and that kind of magical thinking is still highly prevalent today. Um, I guess we're going to get into that as well later in the show. I guess the, the, the one thing I would, I would say also that, you know, I, I heard in that is that these same ideas uh, that have been so common in science fiction that, you know, we're, we're headed toward the stars or the, the converse is we're headed back to the caves. You know, it can, it can either be one thing or the other, but it's not going to be somewhere in between. Um, that, that kind of dichotomy is still very prevalent in this conversation about what is the fate for humanity and the rest of life with which we share the planet. Um, Michael, um, that probably the if there's sort of a quote-unquote doomsday scenario that people talk about the most and are the most familiar with right now, uh, although there are, uh, I think one of the things, one of the arguments we'll make today is that there isn't one scenario, there isn't one problem, there's a whole bunch of interrelated problems. But the first thing on most people's menu probably is climate change. You know, we heard in 2016 that we reached what's called the carbon threshold, uh, uh, which is... Um, you know, uh, the number 400 in terms of, of, of carbon content. Um, is is that a place, Michael, where as far as you're concerned, we've actually moved into an area where you just can't pull back on the stick and make the, the nose of the plane go back up in the air? Well, I, you know, I think that scientists have looked at this very closely, and they have a range of scenarios for the future. If you look at the scientific reports, from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they give us a number of scenarios for the future. Uh, some of them are scenarios that we could live with. Other scenarios are much more terrifying, I have to say. There are scenarios that I think most of us cannot live with. The question is, which of those are most likely to prevail? And I would say the path that we're on today are the more frightening scenarios. That is, 
that the ice cap in Greenland and in Antarctica are going to melt before the end of the century, and sea level will rise by 200 feet or so, and most of the cities on the coasts of the United States and the rest of the world will be inundated, and, and this will bring civilization to a collapse to a great extent. That's the worst-case scenario that I think we're facing. Is that absolutely uh, certain to happen? No, I'm not sure that's the case, uh, but it's, we seem to be moving in that direction. So, Tom, uh, you know, we'll just use that number as a way of talking about something else. So uh, I gave the number 400. That's the CO2 level, 400 parts per million. So when they first started measuring that at the pristine Mauna Loa Mountaintop Observatory in Hawaii uh, in 1958, that number was 316, which is just a little bit higher than the pre-industrial level of 280 ppm. So 400 is like was like the big number. It's not necessarily uh, a scientifically significant number, but it's kind of a threshold that you cross. But basically what happens, like why this is happening is we have more and more people and they keep digging up carbon out of the ground and burning it for fuel. So there's a, no way that you can kind of unhook this from population, right? One of the reasons we put out more carbon is there's just more of us wanting to do stuff with carbon. Precisely. There's no way you can unhook it. And it's kind of interesting. I, I've looked at that that uh, graph of the Mauna Loa Observatory of atmospheric carbon dioxide from the data set beginning, as you said, in 58 to now. And, um, it, and if you look at the, the way it graphs, it, it, it almost is exactly the same hockey stick style graph of exponential growth of you know, rising up, 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 up that you see when you look at human population numbers. You know, it took all of our history as a species uh, to about the beginning of the Industrial Revolution for us to hit one billion. And then in the last couple of centuries, in part due to a whole range of innovations in, you know, science, germ theory, public health, all of that combined with really successful, in a sense, in a, uh, exploitation of this fossil fuel windfall, this one-time windfall that nature, you know, set down for us through geological time. The combination of that has allowed humanity to grow by more than seven times. You know, we're at 7.5 billion now and growing fast. It's, you know, in the, you know, the sim most simple sense, it's just there are so many of us uh, just doing what we do that the consequences to that on both the ecological capacity of the earth to sustain humanity and also, again, on our fellow members in the community of life, that is, all the creatures with which we share the planet, the impacts on them um, are just severe. And the, you know, the clearest marker of this, you know, of that we have dramatically something wrong, you know, that we are moving toward a more dystopian future, are, one, that we've precipitated this global extinction crisis, you know, the, the sixth extinction crisis in Earth's geological history. But this one, you know, this time there's no asteroid striking the, the Yucatan Peninsula and causing the dinosaurs to go extinct. This time it's us. We're the asteroid. And then the second marker is the absolute horrific inequality and suffering of the world's poor. You know, there are three billion people or so, nearly half the world's population, that live on the equivalent of $2.50 a day. So they're, they're poor, very poor. And then, you know, there's a significant subset, you know, about 
800 million people on Earth, according to the UN, who are chronically, desperately malnourished. I mean, people who are starving, in effect. That level of suffering for humanity and that level of suffering for the rest of life should tell us that there's something dramatically wrong with the status quo. So, uh, Michael, let's come back to climate change for a second and, in fact, the rise of sea levels. I mean, this isn't something that's a future scenario, right? This is something that's observable and requiring immediate adaptation at this moment, and not just like in the Maldives, like here in the U.S., right? Absolutely. Uh, You can look at the coastal areas of the United States, and you could look at measurements that have been taken over the past quarter of a century, and you could see a gradual rise in average sea levels that have occurred over the past quarter of a century. But not only can you see this year to year, but the sea surges, the flooding that's occurring is ever more severe in places like Florida, along the Atlantic coast of the United States. Uh, Miami is continually being flooded. Our major naval bases, like the Norfolk Naval Base, is being flooded constantly as sea level rises. Uh, So this is underway now. Many areas of the eastern United States are being severely eroded, like Cape Cod and Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard as a consequence of this. So this isn't some future scenario. This is happening right now. Yeah, but, you know, Michael, some people would say, well, so what? We're really good at adapting. That's the thing our species is kind of famous for, is you know, no matter else, who else gets screwed in terms of biodiversity loss, we, we usually kind of come out of this okay. So can we adapt our way out of the stuff that you're describing? Well, this comes back to what Tom was just saying Uh, uh, talking about uh, a few minutes ago about inequality. Yes, uh, the very wealthy in this country probably can develop uh, sufficient adaptation. The the super rich who live on Nantucket Island and, and other enclaves of the rich probably can afford to move their houses back from the eroding coastlines and move to new locations for sure. But we've learned that the the capacity of our society to adapt to these uh, severe storms and rising seas is not equitably distributed. And oftentimes our society does not respond in an equitable fashion. Look at Hurricane Katrina when vast numbers of people were virtually abandoned by public officials, many of them to drown. And in Hurricane Sandy uh, a few years ago, the outer boroughs of New York were, were essentially ignored while, you know, downtown Manhattan, where the wealthier people live, were given immediate attention. This is what I worry about, that, that the adaptation will be selective, and as a result, we will have deep divisions in society. This is what we're seeing around the world, and this is what worries me because the lack of equity in responding to climate change will be a source of conflict and division within societies. Um, I have so many places I, I want to go with all this. But, but so, Tom, um, you know, you and Michael are both basically saying the same thing, which is that, that some people can adapt and science their way out of these problems. But, well, we but, don't. Yeah, go ahead. Well, maybe. Maybe. Okay. Maybe. Yes. We'll continue with that thought. Well, yeah. The, 
I mean, on the outlier of the, you know, the spectrum of thinking is that dystopian, this dystopian track that we're on through, a, you know, really a series of positive feedback loops, you know, methane release, the the, ton, the permafrost melts, all these things happen. You get all these forcing mechanisms, and global climate chaos simply makes the planet uninhabitable f- for humanity for the most part. That's, that's sort of an outlier position, you know, and that, um, that human extinction would actually come in the near term, not in the far, far future sometime. That may not be the most likely scenario, but it's possible. But to, to sort of amplify Michael's point, what... What is extraordinarily ironic in a perverse way is that it has been largely the overdeveloped world that has caused this issue through this exploitation of this one-time windfall of fossil fuels. And yet the consequences of climate chaos that we're seeing, they're really beginning to ramp up now and really beginning to amplify. The consequences of that, for the most part, at least initially, are going to hit the poorest parts of the world the hardest, and the the people who can le- who are already suffering and can least afford more ca- chaos in climate, are the ones who will suffer first and probably the most. So, Michael, I mean, you know, you guys are both kind of sketching out a scenario of haves and have-nots. The haves and have-nots can be divided out in terms of socioeconomic sorting, uh, kind of a la the Hunger Games or something. But the other kinds of haves and have-nots are nations, nation states, maybe, uh, as in your book, ultimately complex uh, alliances of planetary planetary corporations and and you know, somewhat militarized uh, global powers. But, I mean, you're all, we're already seeing that, that kind of thing right now in terms of nation states deciding who's going to be a have and who's going to be a have not. You've got um, India and China bumping heads right now over the Brahmaputra River. Uh, sketch that one out really quickly for people, Michael. Sure thing. Uh, this bears on the issue of water, which as climate change advances, uh, water is going to be, I I fear, the most hotly contested resource. In the past, uh, it was oil. Uh, Oil was once the resource that people were most likely to go to war over in the Persian Gulf. We've had a few wars over oil in the Middle East. In the future, though, I fear it's going to be water that will be the most hotly contested resource because with climate change in many areas of the world, it's going to become increasingly scarce. And in the case of Asia, the large, largest source of, of water are the glaciers in the Himalayas, and those glaciers are melting, and eventually they're going to disappear as the planet warms. And as a result, the, the headwaters of these rivers will become increasingly a source of contestation. Many of them arise in China, in the Himalayan mountains, in Tibetan plateau. They supply the rivers of India, of Southeast Asia, and China as well. And China, fearing water scarcity of its own, has announced plans to divert many of these rivers to satisfy its own needs. And this would deprive India, not to mention Uh, all of Southeast Asia of vital water supplies. And India has said, if you do that, that would be a cause of war for us. So both China and India are talking about the possibility of conflict over China's plans 
to divert the Brahmaputra River and its upstream area to take that water to northern China rather than allow it to flow as it would naturally into India. Right. So good news is that both of those countries are really interested in hydropower. Uh, bad news is they might go to war over the water, uh, not just for hydropower, but for all the ways that we use water. So, Tom, just to make things even scarier, and you kind of alluded to this right at the beginning. I mean, we're talking about climate change. We're talking about ways in which uh, the, the uh, population growth and, and the battle over resources uh, creates all kinds of potential for conflicts. Um, but you kind of alluded to this. I mean, you know, there are a bunch of different X factors that could radically alter this scenario for the worst. I, I, in my darkest moments, I think, well, before most of that stuff comes to a head, some kind of drug resist- resistant superbug is going to come along and just clean out some huge percentage of the world's population. Um, how high is that on your list of anxieties, Tom? Well, I, I couldn't help but notice it's on the, the Ebola virus is the, this week's cover of Time magazine. You know, this finally we have a week without Trump and we get Ebola <laughs> on the cover of Time. And it was funny that you know back to the your opening little uh, sound clip from the 1940s, you know, on the cover you have the you know, are we ready for the next pandemic? Inside a few pages of the current issue, you see some little uh, extraordinary wonderful startup from Germany that is um, working on individual helicopter taxis. You know, it's you know the the flying car. It's this year's version of the flying car. It's mm-hmm. gonna come pick you up, and so you know your Uber driver comes in a helicopter instead of a car. You know, so it's that same idea of of you know dystopias around the corner or technical nirvana. We're gonna engineer ourselves uh, into heaven. Um, the what was the question? Well, I was asking sort of a, specifically about superbugs. I, I mean, that, oh, yeah. well, the, the, I one, think the one that I we think, don't know okay, about. But here, here's the question. Yeah. I mean, here's the answer to that. Yeah, global pandemics are actually more and more likely for two reasons. One, population density and population um, being forced out into areas of formerly intact habitat and running up with um, new uh, host species that, that actually house host uh, viruses to which you know humans are naive. So that is actually really likely. Whether or not, however, a global pandemic really knocks down the, the global population enough to solve these problems, and, and that's, again, kind of perverse because it would represent tremendous suffering, um, and nobody would wish for that. But even that is not necessarily a solution. If you look at the population dip with the Black Death in the Middle Ages, you know, things came right back up. So a one-off sort of black swan event like that is not a silver bullet. Because if, if people are essentially, there are too many of us doing the wrong things and have the wrong ideas that justify our behaviors... That doesn't solve, you know, there's no ultimate solution there until the ideas that undergird our society change. Yeah, so let's take a break now. I want to talk about those ideas that undergird our society because that is maybe ultimately where the rubber meets the road. So let's take a quick break. We'll come back with both of our guests. Waste another breath. Don't go past the point. I'm no reason. 
How do you feel about the future? Are you more optimistic or pessimistic uh, and why? Climate change doesn't uh, feel uh, very optimistic and with the way politics are going, it's not... I, I cannot say that I feel optimistic, but I really hope. I feel optimistic because the human race is pretty resilient. Through history, we've seen changes, adversity, plagues, and we're still here. Climate change, we've had ice age. We're still here. Are there any uh, problems currently that do worry you that you think uh, we might not be able to resolve? Well, atomic war is something that you can't resolve, but as long as nobody presses the button, we should be good. I think if I chose to be pessimistic, I don't know, it's like kind of like, where do you go from there? I think you, you have to believe that it's possible. So I think, yeah, it's true. We are in a um, kind of dismal state right now, but I do think the, the prime of humanity has not passed. Mm, I can't really say. We're destroying our own selves, so I don't really think it's gonna be that, that good. I think that our priorities need to be set straight. Preservation needs to be key. And as far as the ozone layer and, and the Earth's you know, soil itself, I think that we need to pay more attention to that. Human beings have a great potential uh, to be destructive, but I also think that we have a great potential for change. We need hope, as simple as that. All right, that's the producer of this episode, Josh Nalea, wading through sirens and car alarms in the city of New Haven, asking, uh, and he made a point of asking younger people uh, how they feel about uh, these questions. Joining us from uh, Vermont Public Radio's studios uh, is Tom Butler, Vice President for Conservation Advocacy at the Foundation for Deep Ecology and Board President of the Northeast Wilderness Trust. He's the author of Overdevelopment, Overpopulation, Overshoot. Michael Clare, a five colleges professor of peace and world security studies, defense correspondent of the nation, author of The Race for What's Left, The Global Scramble for the World's Last Resources. In just a second, I'm going to have Tom uh, tackle that whole, uh, get us started on that whole question of the ideas that undergird our existence these days. But before we go there, Michael, I think we should talk a little bit about the geopolitics of this and maybe the geopolitics of this close to home. I mean, if in fact things continue on their current track, won't certain parts even of the United States, the wealthy, non-third world, not subtropical United States, become inhabitable, uh, uninhabitable? And what happens then? Okay. Well, I think the United States, like every large country, is going to find itself divided between those parts of the country that might be able to survive and even prosper in a climate-altered world. And there are parts of the United States that are not going to be able to survive very well in such a world. The American Southwest, for example, is I don't see how it can survive a climate-altered world. I spoke before about the centrality of water in the future, and the, the Southwest has very little bit, very few sources of water, and they're going to virtually disappear, many of them, in the years ahead. You have large population centers, Phoenix and Las Vegas. They're going to become uninhabitable. So what will happen to those areas? I don't know. We may have mass migrations, like you now see in Africa, of people who will have to flee, will have to abandon those parts of the United States and move elsewhere. And who knows what kind of reception they're going to receive. So, um, so yeah, so we might be t talking, I assume, uh, there's already talk, Michael, in some places of secession. Um, so that's one possibility, right? That, that maybe some of the more high-functioning areas break off from the low-functioning ones? Absolutely. Now, bear in mind, I'm talking about when conditions are 
much worse than they are today. But, you know, you could see that already, the beginnings of this kind of process where areas become uninhabitable in the United States and people are leaving because they can't can't continue to live there. Florida, the whole state of Florida may be submerged by the end of this century. So the areas, whereas other parts of the United States, New England, the Pacific Northwest, may be able to survive quite well in the future under extreme circumstances. We don't know, but I find it hard to imagine that the United States, as it now is, will remain intact under those extreme circumstances. And let me be very clear, Colin, I'm talking about if the worst scenarios occur that scientists tell us are possible, those are not the only scenarios. If we succeed in rapidly reducing our emissions of carbon dioxide from the burning of fossil fuels, if we do that rapidly, starting now, we could avert those very worst scenarios. But if, on the other hand, we continue business as usual and continue to burn fossil fuels, continue to burn coal, don't make those dramatic changes, we are going to see the worst possible scenarios. All right. So I think one of the questions, Tom, is why haven't we begun to fix as many things as we possibly can? Why haven't we begun to drastically reduce our carbon emissions? Why do other things seem to have higher prominence on the agenda than doing something like that? Why did we just elect as president a man who seems to have very little regard for any of the issues that we're talking about right now? So is there something wired into us as a culture that makes us not really able to think seriously about these scenarios? There are a whole lot of ideas that are embedded in our culture that make it highly problematic for us to do that. One of them is our dominant religion in the modern world, and that is the it's a civil religion. Uh, it's the religion of progress uh, that we assume because you know in our era, in our lifetimes, in our, our parents' lifetimes, this sort of one-time windfall of fossil energy and human creativity. All of the the things that we know uh, that uh, support this explosion of affluence in the overdeveloped world and and increased modernity that that has always been on a one way trajectory. It's always toward I think the word you used earlier in this conversation was more, mm -hmm. the religion of more. So yeah. that that in a superficial way helps kind of sort of obviate the need culturally for thinking about a world of less. Because we've, we, we just don't do that. That's not the American way. It's not the way. But there's a much deeper idea, a more fundamental problem, even below that religion, civil religion of progress. And that is the idea that this is all for us, that the earth belongs to us, that we have dominion over it, that in fact, you know, it's not just this. It's, it's, it's sort of a planetary, global-scale Walmart of resources for human use and enjoyment and profit. Now, that is a really, really new idea in human history and a, an extremely dangerous one because it helps prevent us from understanding what we truly are, part and parcel of the fabric of life. One member in a community, one species among millions, and the result of the same 
ecological and evolutionary processes. If you, if you take that origin story seriously, that the evolutionary odyssey is what actually put us here, then we're not sort of metaphorically related to the rest of life. We are literally cousins to everything else alive on this planet right now. And, and yet we precipitate, we're precipitating this sort of global holocaust against the rest of life through our behavior. We're essentially wiping out our family members, in part because we see that as just the inert stuff, the so-called natural resources to support human development. I want to circle back to one aspect of that in just a second time uh, before we run out of time in this segment. But, Michael, you know, I mean, in terms of the geopolitics of this, I mean, and maybe to build on what Tom is saying, you know, this will come up in the the final segment, too. But you could sort of argue, well, we have all kinds of capacities to grow food and feed people and stuff like that 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 could allow us to solve many uh, of the problems. And we certainly have the science and understanding to begin to address some of the questions of overpopulation, too. One reason we don't do it, I assume, is we don't have even a global language of sharing, right? That, that, that most of these things get worked out in a, a kind of zero-sum basis that, you know, whatever organization we're talking about, whether it's a, 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 a nation or a company or just a, an individual person, thinks, well, how can I not be on the losing end of this? Yes, and, and I think adding to what Tom said about this national religion of progress, uh, we, have a, we have an assumption of what the American way of life means uh, that is way off the scales for what most of the rest of the people in the world uh, assume is, is a, a, a appropriate way of life. We, we seem to assume that uh, an an American way of life requires a much larger consumption of resources than anybody else, that we all have to have a large house and a piece of property and one, two, three cars and many appliances, all of which consume vast amounts of energy. And we're very reluctant to let go of this image of what a good quality of life requires and to to uh, acquire all of these resources to make this life possible requires a foreign policy and a geopolitics of intervention in the rest of the world to extract those resources and bring them here and sometimes we go to war to make that possible so our whole society is built around the acquisition of resources to make this quality of life possible. What we're going to have to do is to re-examine what it makes for a good quality of life. We don't really need all of those things to be happy. That's what it's going to take uh, in order to adjust to a changing world. And I think Tom is very right about questioning the, the, the presumptive uh, superiority of of those notions of what what a good quality of life is. You know, Tom, uh, real quickly because we uh, need to get to the next segment. But I I think a lot of people are listening and thinking, well, yeah, but not me. I mean, I, I listen to public radio. Uh, I'm certainly not part of that mindset. I, I know you feel as though even embedded in the advertising that people consume watching television on a given night, there are some of these notions, but but subtle and and insidious. Give us an example. 
Okay, I'll give you an example. From the world's largest conservation group, which I'll, I'll be unnamed because I'm about to be critical, but I think that organization still does a lot of good. Uh, f- you know, not long ago, they were running a series of advertisements, including in Time magazine and other major periodicals, to try to educate people about all these things that nature provides to us for free that makes life possible, you know, clean air and and uh, clean water and pollination and fertile soils, all those things that uh, ecological economists now put under the, the, the title ecological or ecosystem services. Well, I have a big problem with that sort of valuation and commodification, and even the language there shows dominion. You know, those ecosystems are out there serving us. But notwithstanding that, you know, they, they were trying to do a good thing. But how did they, they put it in their ad? There's a picture of a tree, and the headline is, Nature Cleans Our Air. You know, and so here, here you know, this, this interconnected fabric of life, all of Earth's diversity that we would say, you know, kind of encapsulate as nature— um, is here framed as sort of a planetary-scale cleaning lady, you know, clean, tidying up after the pesky humans. And they also use that word, that possessive our, our air, mm-hmm. as if it belongs to us. The air doesn't belong to us, although we're treating it like it is because we're using it as an open sewer in which to dump our carbon pollution. So that language of dominion, the way we, instead of talking about our, you know, fellow members in the community of life, we call them natural resources. Or, uh, you know, we talk about saving our forests. Well, the forests don't belong to us. Or saving our oceans. Well, the oceans don't belong to us. That whole framing of possession and dominion and ownership is a huge part of the frame, the cognitive frame we have that undergirds this this relationship of people to the rest of life in the modern world. All right. So in our final segment, we're going to inject a, a tiny bit of hope to this into this. I do want to thank Michael Clare. His book, The Race for What's Left, The Global Scramble for the World's Last Resources. Uh, you should, if you didn't get enough today, you should absolutely uh, run and get that book and get uh, even more because there's a lot more to be said. Uh, we're going to come back. We're going to talk to somebody who's uh, well, kind of a techno-optimist. Uh, Tom will stay with us also. And maybe we'll give you something anyway to walk home and you know, feel good about If I'm going to be converted into a food source, all I ask is that you make me into Pinkberry. Ideally, the new Wonder Woman swirl flavor. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kion Wolf, with help from arms merchant Amanda Fish. The part of Bill Carey was played by Tina Turner. Just a wild guess, you might need some escapism after this, so tomorrow the nose watches Guardians of the Galaxy 2. And now, back to Colin. All right, so uh, we're heading down the home stretch here of this show, which was at least internally titled The Point of No Return. But maybe, maybe we're not. Maybe we're not at the point of, to, uh, uh, of no return. I'd like to believe that that was the case uh, and that we could get a little bit smarter anyway than we have been. Uh, Tom Butler's st- still with us. Uh, he's, he's the editor of um, Overdevelopment, Overpopulation, Overshoot, uh, his book. And uh, joining us now is Vivek Wadwa, uh, Washington Post columnist, director of research at Duke's Pratt School of Engineering, 
Engineering. He's the author of The Driver in the Driverless Car, How Our Technology Choices Will Create the Future. So, um, Vivek, you've been listening to a, a conversation that really is about a lot of wrong terms that we've made uh, and ways in which we may have passed certain thresholds beyond which we cannot reel ourselves back. But I know you're a big believer uh, in the capacity of technology and inventiveness to uh, make course corrections. So mention one or two things that give you hope right now. Well, first of all, I agree that we have made many mistakes and we need to respect the planet. The discussion was accurate. However, there's something happening here which uh, we don't understand, and it's called exponential technology, that there are a whole number of technologies that are now about to change the way we live, the way we work, the way we consume energy, the way we produce energy, everything. You know, let's start with some of the basics in terms of energy, which is what uh, is at the heart of the discussion, solar. Solar has now crossed the point at which um, it's cost-effective for everyone in the United States, practically. That um, the cost of solar has dropped to the point that it's at par with the with the grid. In the next two or three years, it'll drop to the point that it's about a third cheaper. Five or seven years, it's going to be half as much. Ten, fifteen years, it's going to cost a quarter or an eighth as much as it does today which means that we can now start getting off the grid. Stop, we can start using clean energy versus fossil fuels. I see that within 15 years, we'll be in an era of unlimited, clean, and almost free energy. Now, this sounds bizarre given where we are today. It sounds crazy, but look at all the data. The cost of solar has dropped 99% over the past 35 years, and what goes with that is storage. You know, we're talking about, uh, by, by 2025 or so, an electric car that can go 35, they can go 250 miles should cost about $15,000. $10,000 without all the features. So it will be able to have cars that run on sunlight, which drive themselves, which replace our uh, fossil fuel-consuming vehicles in about seven or eight years from now. I see a mass cycle of replacement. I see that global warming will become a, a greater problem. We will have, uh, uh, you know, some parts of the world which suddenly are now, uh, 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 you know, being damaged severely by climate change. However, the alternatives will have dropped to the point that it gets into autopilot and we start replacing it en masse. And I'm nearly certain this is going to happen. Is, is some of this, though, dependent on cultural change that goes along with technology change, technological change? I mean, we have some pretty good electric cars right now. I think there's about maybe a little bit more than half a million electric, uh, electric vehicles on the roads in the USA, which when you look at our population size and the number of traditional vehicles, it's not really not that, not that many. And, and I wonder whether part of this is changing in the, some of the ways that Tom was talking about, the language we use, the culture that we have. You have to want to do better in order to do better. Our culture is about money. It's about the econ what's economic here. If the cost of electric cars drops, you know, for example, the Tesla Model 3, they received nearly half a million orders, and people were shocked that they received this level of orders. At, this is at $35,000. If the price is $20,000, they would probably receive 5 million orders. What happens is that as the alternatives become, become better, cheaper, more elegant than what we have, our culture basically is a money culture. It's really about material goods. We gladly replace our objects. So we'll do the same thing with, uh, with transportation and with the energy in our houses as well. You know, this sounds like science fiction, but I tell you, I already live it. I mean, I live in Menlo Park, California. I live in what's called a passive home, which consumes very little energy. It's a 3,500-square-foot house with very high ceilings. I drive a Model, a Model S electric vehicle. My energy bills for the entire year are about $500. If I had added one more solar panel, I would be at zero. I would be generating you know, excess electricity. 
you know, my son is building a house which is going to be off-grid completely using the Tesla solar roof and, and batteries. So this is what's already possible. This is not science fiction. We're all going to be living in this future in the next three or four years. So uh, let me go back to Tom for a second. I think the problem that I, I mean, first of all, I, I absolutely hope Vivek is right about all of this, that he's absolutely 100% correct. In a way, the problem that I have is that a society based on choice is then dependent on choice. And, and in a way, when I look at the future, Tom, I feel as though I'm I'm more confident in China trying to solve some of its problems as or trying to solve some of the same problems. I mean, they're gearing up to save themselves. They're, they're pouring a lot of subsidies uh, into sustainable energy. Uh, they're working. I, I can believe in a zero carbon or at least a carbon neutral China more easily than I can uh, believe in, a, in that in the United States, because everything that we do is based on choice, whereas, oddly enough, less democratic societies may be able to organize themselves better. I, I don't know. React to that, Tom. Well, I think Vivek is exactly right. There, there are a host of interesting technological innovations to look to that we could cite that actually have the potential to reduce an individual's carbon footprint. You know, there, there's a lot of things. I, I have you know, a big solar array on my barn. You know, my house is a net zero house. But if you actually calculated the embodied energy in every item that went in to build that house, it still had a tremendous ecological footprint. The stuff that had to be mined and logged and transported out of the earth uh, to make that house, that was a very significant impact, despite the fact that I can now run, you know, have a zero electric bill because I have a solar array on the roof. The bigger question is not whether... Um, for instance, the cell phone is personally beneficial to me. It's looking at it systemically. You know, an individual walking around with a cell phone has an amazing, empowering tool. But in its aggregate, the entire scaffolding of civilization that must exist, from the mining, you know, to the transport networks, to the manufacturing, all of that which must exist before you can make a single call or access the, the YouTube, you know, video is a huge and, at this point, ecologically destructive force on the biosphere. All right, I'm just going to stop you there so we we don't run out of time. I want to go back to Vivek here for a second. One of the questions that I have listening to you, I mean, it all sounds so great, but one concern that I have, to go back to stuff we were talking about earlier on this show, is that things are going to be great in Menlo Park and not so great in subtropical areas, and then ultimately even, uh, you know, 50 miles from Menlo Park, things won't be great. You'll be living behind gates hoping that people with purple mohawks don't come in and and, and take everything you want. Colin, the things, you see, the the beauty of these technologies is, is that they democratize. Solar energy is going to impact the developing world in a more positive way than us. India mandated two weeks ago that by 2030, all the cars sold in India have to be electric. So here you're talking about a democracy with people who have choices making that decision because the economics are going to change. Now, as far as consuming the earth, uh, yeah, Tom is absolutely right that we are uh, you know, consuming it, but the alternative materials being made, for example, in solar energy, we have perovskites. We also now have graphene-based development. And what are perovskites? Calcium. Graphene is carbon, basically, taking pencil lead and bringing it down and, and using nanomaterials to, to develop solar cells and new materials. This is also happening. It's all happening at the same time. Now, Colin, your comment about, uh, yes, bu- them burning down our houses, frankly, I'm terrified about that because... You know, with the rise of Donald Trump, we saw that uh, the the gap is widening to the point that we don't understand why people would vote for such a person. But it's because they're being left out. They're they're basically being disenfranchised. And 
and, and they're rightfully angry about it. So if we don't share the prosperity we're creating, we will definitely have, uh, you know, the modern-day Luddites who are trying to stop progress. And, who, and they're doing it for a reason, because they're, they're rightfully being left out. So this is what the point of my book was, that we're able to build this amazing future. At the same time, we have a lot to worry about. If we don't share the prosperity, if we don't, you know, now make sure that the rewards outweigh the risks, if we don't now make sure that we don't become dependent on technology and uh, you know, we become zombies who are basically controlled by technology, we're going to have this Mad Max future. The alternative is Star Trek. I sincerely believe that we have it within us to get to the Star Trek future. The amazing stuff we saw in science fiction, 300 years ahead of schedule. In the next 20, 30 years, we could now be shooting for the stars and be solving the grand challenges of humanity, of fixing the problems we created, global warming, you know, trying our best to reverse it, um, and, and then, um, you know, doing everything we can to undo the damage that was done over the past 300 years. All right. We're going to have to stop there. Uh, we are out of time. Um, one thing that I would say is that uh, I hope that Bill, when Bill McKibben comes on this show, he always talks about the fact that like, why isn't there gigantic solar manufacturing plants all over America? Why doesn't every state in the union have these gigantic plants for, you know, making panels and batteries and stuff like that that are solar? And I do wonder about that. Anyway, let's let Nick Drake take us out in a somewhat sorrowful note. No one asks why I'm standing here But I have my answers, I look to the sky This is the time of no reply The time of no reply Is calling me to stay Climate change is a hoax. Josh, man, I really think you're ignoring the gravity of our situation here. Gravity is a hoax.